Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it's my great pleasure to have Jeff Winters on the Hey, Salespeople podcast. He is the president of Sapper Consulting, and they are an outsourced SDR firm. Welcome, Jeff. Jeremy, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I think it should be a fun conversation from what we talked about before, since we aligned to challenge each other significantly. I will certainly challenge you on the insourced versus outsourced SDR debate. And then I know we're going to talk a lot about the future of sales engagement and a bit about maybe some more tactical advice on outbound strategy. So we'll cover off on all those things. I'm going to ask you two quick questions. So the first one is, let's talk a little bit about your favorite sales book of all time and why that was so impactful for you. I'm going to go a little different direction. I'm going to do sales leadership, and I'm going to do a book called 11 Rings, which was written by Phil Jackson, the legendary NBA coach who coached Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, and others. And I love it because it taps into something that I think we a little bit underestimate as sales leaders, which is the importance of motivation and winning as a team. And how he took, you know, some of the biggest egos of the most incredible athletes ever and got them to be motivated to win as a team. I understand there's kind of a lot of Buddhist philosophy that he brings to his coaching and mentality. Does that make it through in the book as well? It really does. And how he motivated each individual and how he focused on the individual. It was incredible. And I think very sort of thought inspiring. Second thing is to get to know you a little bit. You can wind, wind the clock back perhaps to your childhood is what's the first thing you ever remember selling? When I was about 14 years old, I was a caddy at this country club. And you only get paid as a caddy when you carry someone else's golf bag for 18 holes. And at this country club, you either had to get there at 4.30 in the morning and wait to carry someone's golf bag or someone who belonged to the club had to request you. And so my friend and I got there uh, 4.30 in the morning, first day, bright-eyed, eager, and got nothing. Waited for hours and hours, nothing, didn't get paid. And the same thing played out for weeks. And then we said, you know what, forget this. We're not going uh, <laughs> to do this. We're going to get somebody to request us. And so finally, we got hooked up with these two ladies named Lois and Nancy. Lois and Nancy were probably in their early 70s and viciously competitive golfers, especially with each other. And so I got to caddy for Nancy. And in the first round, Nancy would say to me, Jeff, hand me my nine iron. And I knew darn well that that nine iron wasn't going to go that far, but she wanted to announce that loudly. So Lois would see how talented and how far she could hit the ball. And so I handed her a five iron, which for those of you that that know a little bit about golf, know that's going to go further than a nine iron. And Nancy hit this incredible shot right on the green, rolled right up near the pin. And Lois thought she had hit this incredible shot with this nine iron. And Nancy and I knew that she hadn't. And so from there on out, Nancy requested me every week. And I guess it was my sort of uh, my first experience with understanding the buyer's needs a little bit and and trying to meet them where they are. So that's my uh, that's my first memory of sales. Well, let's see. We have these sort of three topics that we're going to go into today. Uh, I'd love to start with your vision for the future of sales engagement. I think we're going to look back in 10 years and I think we're going to say that sales engagement was far too narrowly defined, right? So now I think people sort of think about sales engagement and look at sort of a versioning category as like the emails and phone calls and the events that go on between a salesperson and a buyer. I think that's going to change. I think we're going to look back in a decade and say 
that sales engagement is all things revenue. I think customer acquisition is going to be part of sales engagement. I think retention, upsells, everything in, in those disciplines are all going to tree up to sales engagement. Because if you sort of look at the definition of sales engagement, it's interactions between a sales rep and a buyer. And if you narrowly define that as a salesperson and someone who has never bought your product or service, you get one outcome. But if you start thinking about a sales rep more broadly and you start thinking, okay, anybody who helps drive revenue from a customer acquisition standpoint, retain revenue or increase revenue on a per client basis, if all of those people are quote unquote sales reps and anyone who's ever bought or might buy your product or services is defined as a buyer, then you start to think about sales engagement a whole lot differently. I am looking for opportunities to argue with you. On this one, I don't know that I argue, I have that much of a disagreement with you. It might be about the pace of, over which it happens and which pins fall first, right? So if you think about the funnel, you're talking about you know very top of the funnel marketing automation. The next step is this burgeoning zone of companies that are managing your content for your salespeople. So I'd put the seismics and show pads and lesson leaves in that category. Then you've got what's today narrowly defined as sales engagement, right? In which the company I work for plays in. Then you've got a bit of a gap in opportunity management. I mean, you could say that CRMs are for opportunity management, but they're much more of a system of record than a system of opportunity execution. And then, right, you've got the more narrowly defined customer success folks out there like Gainsight and others. But I think I'm with you on the convergence of these things. Which one do you think is going to happen first, though? Like, where do you think the sales engagement folks like, you know, like SalesLoft and others are, are going to go first? I think it's already happening. We're just not talking about it. If you think through interactions between sales reps and buyers, right, and you look at sort of the evolution of the chief revenue officer role, for example. Chief revenue officer now often over sales and success. Well, those customers are, I think, are now being thought of more and more, quote unquote, as buyers. And, you know, SaaS, of course, has accelerated this. The model whereby sort of renewing your customers on a, you know, theoretically speaking, on a month to month, you have to continue to earn their basis month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year. I think that's what's in part accelerating this. And I think success is already sort of there or getting there, which discipline is going to more ubiquitously fall under the sales engagement heading. I think probably success. I think you're spot on there. What next after the customer success world? I think very naturally enablement sort of falls next and then probably marketing last, not necessarily because it's the least natural to fall into the sales engagement bucket. But I think there are a lot of marketing people, and I've had this debate with many marketing people who will uh, vehemently disagree that marketing ultimately should fall within the sales engagement sphere. But um, I disagree with those people. I think that if marketing's job is to help sales sell better and to help sales be more effective, then they are interacting with buyers and potential buyers. And I think that ultimately, as the last domino to fall, if you will, they fall into the sales engagement sphere. And sales engagement then is sort of the big circle in which all of these other disciplines live. The CRO sort of becomes the chief sales engagement officer. It includes enablement, success, sales, and marketing. And the implications of that are, are sort of as follows. Number one, you're probably hiring potentially a somewhat different person um, with different competencies and different style. 
Number two, just as we know, the, the change in the org structure brings about different focus and different priorities, and it solves different problems to some extent. Look, the average sales rep spends 440 hours per year trying to send the right content to buyers. 440 hours per year. That's, a, that's like a nutty number to me. So, you know, look, that's just one small symptom of sales engagement not uniting all people who are selling to all people that may buy or have bought. And I think that starting to think about your CRO differently in terms of your chief sales engagement officer is a tactic today that can start helping you prepare for what I think is going to be this evolution and expansion of sales engagement. Yeah. When you say hire a different person, I mean, I guess double clicking a little bit on that. I have a, a buddy right now who he's a CRO and he's moving from one organization to the next as most sadly CROs do every 22 to 24 months. He was talking to me. He's like, I want to be in a role where, uh, yes, I do run both pre-sale and post-sale, but he does not want to touch marketing. I thought that was interesting. Why do you think existing CROs might not want to touch marketing and vice versa? Why might CMOs not want to touch revenue? Not to say that CMOs can't do it and haven't done it. I think they absolutely can and obviously absolutely have. But if you said, hey, if you put yourself in the shoes of a CMO, why wouldn't you want to make the move? It would be because of sales, sales process, and maybe some of the stigma around sales. The first question of CROs not wanting to move over marketing, I think that there's this sort of long-held belief that marketing is sort of, quote-unquote, strategic, long-tail, and that... There's so much about marketing that's not the quarter-to-quarter mindset of sort of your typical head of sales. And maybe that perceived mindset creates some apprehension, but I don't think it should, and I don't think it's, it's necessarily true. I think in a lot of companies today, especially companies that are a little more transactional, average selling price is a little bit lower, sales cycle is a little shorter. A lot of marketing activities, particularly if you put demand gen into marketing, are a whole lot more aligned with the timeline of sales and, and sales objectives, a little more short tail and a little faster. Let's actually move on to the in-source versus outsource. And I will start with a bit of a provocative statement, which is that I am personally not a fan of outsource SDR. And I'm not a fan for a couple reasons. And one reason is that I, I feel that a large part of the ROI of having an SDR program is that you are training and developing people who will hit the ground running as AEs. And I have done some back of the envelope calculation, you know, that says that you get about an eighty to a hundred thousand dollar benefit if you factor in hiring bad AEs, underqualified AEs who churn out and so on. So that's one reason. And then the other reason has to do with kind of alignment and turnover and that sort of thing. So am I wrong or? <laughs> yeah, I look at it a little differently. I think your first comment of creating a bench for AEs, that doesn't necessarily jive for me. So I love the idea that AEs and SDRs are not necessarily the same person, ultimately, not necessarily the same personality type, not necessarily the same competencies. And I don't think that there should be an automatic transition from SDR to AE. I think you can have, and I'm sure you'd probably agree with this too, like super SDRs. And I think that should be celebrated. And I think over time, that's going to be more celebrated. I largely think that SDR and SDR competencies are different than AE and AE competencies. And I think that that's great. And I think they can often be different people, not always, but often. And so 
if we're relying on our SDRs to substitute as our AE bench, we might, we might be making a, a little mistake. You were saying that SDRs aren't necessarily you know, geared to becoming account executives. If not that, then what is the career path for an SDR? Number one, and this goes back to my sort of theory on sales engagement, I think SDRs are going to become more and more and more prominent within the sales organization. And I think you're going to have lots of interesting layers of management for SDRs. And then also as sales engagement expands, I think the world's the SDR's oyster. I wish I was an SDR when I graduated from school or, or at any point. I wish I'd had that job because I think it gives you such incredible exposure to go into any other area within the customer acquisition silo. So I think, I think assuming that SDRs automatically become A's is it's just not the way that I look at the world. And I think it just also argues conceptually against the tailwind of separating scheduling meetings from closing deals. Like we've had this evolution to SDR in some part, I think, because there's been this theory in the ethos that you should have your salespeople closing deals or and your SDR scheduling meetings. So if you're assuming that that's the case, I think it would be unwise to then further assume that the SDR is going to definitely turn in, like the AE is the obvious career path of the SDR. I just, I don't think that's how it's going to shake. I've seen different training programs or basically different SDR programs. And the ones where it's more challenged is if you just have that SDR, to your point, setting meetings Till the day that they get promoted to account executive, then they're less prepared to become a successful account executive. The best training programs I've seen, they sort of progressively are teaching AE-centered skills to the SDRs such that perhaps in the last whatever quarter, let's say, of the SDR's tenure, their quota for op generation may actually be reduced in order to give them time to spend more time conducting discovery or spend more time partnering with the AE as they have calls that are deeper into the mid and late funnel. And I think that's great if that's what the SDR wants to do. But it does kind of argue against you shouldn't outsource your SDRs for continuity purposes. I mean, what you're saying is the best training programs get the SDRs up and out quickly to enable them to be more successful in their careers, which I totally agree with. I don't agree that's necessarily to the AE spot, but irrespective, if you're arguing for continuity, you can't also argue for the up and out SDR training program. Those two things don't jive in my head. And so I think it actually argues for outsourced SDR for the purposes of continuity rather than against outsourced SDRs for the purposes of continuity. Well, say more about what you mean by continuity. When you are making the case against outsourcing SDR, I think part of the case you were making was the continuity of the SDR with sort of the marketplace, with your prospects, with your systems, et cetera. Right. That allows them to hit the ground running faster as an AE. Yes, that is true if they want to go forward as an AE. My point is that because SDR turnover, whether it be up and out of the organization or up through the organization is so high, for good reason, largely, I think that outsourcing SDR becomes a wise option because you are training an an outsourced SDR shop once, as opposed to training SDRs whose entire mission is to move through the SDR role into an AE role. And so then you're constantly training 
hiring, retraining with the mission of not making them super SDRs, but with the mission of making them AEs, as opposed to with an outsourced shop, we have super SDRs. And so you're only training the process once and it just continues to get better. So I think that's the argument for the outsourced SDR shop. I guess my counter to that is that I don't think you're training the shop. I think that you're training the individual SDRs in the outsource shop as well as the SDR managers in the outsource shop. So I guess my feeling is I'd rather train the SDR manager inside of my own company as opposed to training them in the outsource shop. Yeah, and I think that's a reasonable argument. And look, let me, let me make the argument against the outsourced SDR shop. I think the better argument is, look, if I need to own SDR as a competency internally, if that is something that I absolutely have to own internally, if you made that decision for the future of the business, and I think certain businesses should because it's that critical, then I don't think you should necessarily outsource your entire SDR function. Maybe you should outsource some of it to augment the work you're currently doing. But if you're 100% convinced this is going to be a core competency of the business and hypercritical in order for its ultimate success, I don't think you should necessarily outsource your entire SDR function. But I think there are lots of companies where that's not the case, especially those that are sort of um, adopting sales engagement now and sort of thinking through sales engagement now that don't have a 50-person SDR shop and have no vision to have a 50-person SDR shop, internally, I mean. And I think for those folks, that's where it makes a huge amount of sense. I do think that there are contexts where outsourced SDR shops are extremely valuable, and, and you hit it a couple of them. I mean, one is there are organizations where the path from SDR to AE simply does not make sense because the AEs that are needed need to have you know five to ten years of industry experience to be successful. And in those instances, the outsourced SDR shop is the right answer if what you want is a, a way to get leverage and to get meetings and there is, there is no viable path. I, I think the other context, which is the one you mentioned, is if you don't have the scale and you're trying to learn the motion, then you can help this partner and outsource SDR shop can absolutely help you learn the motion. I was once working with an outsource SDR shop where you know, we had a, a an unsuccessful relationship and, and we parted ways, you know, amicably. And what they said was that 80% of the time, if your intent is to scale up an existing motion, then the outsourced will is likely to work. But if your intent is to develop a new motion, that you just go into it knowing that there's only about a 20% chance that that's going to work. Does that resonate with you? Do those numbers make sense to you? Uh, no. And I think this brings up a really interesting sort of topic that I can weave in here. So as we think about sales engagement going forward, let's just talk about outbound as a facet of sales engagement. Okay. So those who are going to win at outbound going forward, I think are going to do a few things. The first is they're going to use AI for sort of campaign creation as well as for messaging. And the reason for that is because you're going to be competing with people who are and so your, your new competition isn't necessarily going to be your direct competitor. It's going to be everyone who's competing for a meeting with your buyer. Okay. And so the reason that this becomes so important and, and how it relates to your question is that you're going to have SDR shops outsourced, SDR shops internal that have enough data and have adopted the technology to suggest to you your new path. So this whole like 20% business I, don't, I can't speak for that firm, but I can say that the approach needs to be vetted with data 
And you can either vet with data through split tests, which I think are just becoming too slow because you could be split testing two like suboptimal baselines, or you could be using a really, really good baseline. And that to me comes from sort of AI and helping with sort of messaging and campaign creation. If you're going to ask your outsourced SDR shop or even your own internal SDR function to generate a new motion, they have to have the data capabilities to do it because that data informs where they start, just the baseline, and then you can split test from there. The world of AI, right? It had a bit of a heyday, you know, a year and a half ago, and then there were a lot of failed implementations around that. I know you're probably testing and evaluating a lot of different technologies. How are you seeing that that AI market evolving to actually be something useful for, for sales and marketing professionals? I think to the extent that AI is used to enable sales and marketing professionals and help them start with a better baseline to test, that to me should be the expectation for now. And I think that provided the expectations are right, then you can start to realize more success. So for instance, you know, we've built internally a tool based on a billion rows of data and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of emails where we can say, hey, we want to reach out to X persona at XYZ company, right? And we can say, here's the kind of email you should write to that person based on all this data. It's not the perfect email or the specific email, but here's the kind of email. And the value there is that your competitor is writing emails based on their own split tests that come out of their own heads. And so to me, if AI can help inform the baseline, can inform the starting point, then you can be significantly more successful sort of short, mid, and long term. Because the technology is moving so quickly and things are evolving so quickly that split testing is great, A-B testing is great. It's just too slow. If you start with test A and test B are both not very good, then you're split testing right. two not very good emails, which are not very good talk tracks or whatever, and you can only get incrementally better. I love your positioning of that, that AI is a place to help you start. And I think a really good example of this, right, is just like you, we're collecting all this data. We're now approaching a billion interactions and we're able to see things that sometimes are semi-intuitive, sometimes intuitive, sometimes totally counterintuitive. So on the semi-intuitive vein, you know, we looked and we discovered, for example, that one word subject lines are the most effective. And then what's the word? Well, it's not that there's one word, it's often your own company name as opposed to like their first name or their company name or something else. But even that evolves, right? So as everybody uses their own company name as one word subject lines, eventually the prospects get immune to that. You have to do something different. So the, you know, the AI or machine learning, if you will, has to be smart enough to evolve what recommendations it gives as guidance for your initial split testing. So I totally agree with that. One interesting nugget that we found over time is that personalizing emails does not work um, as well as relevant non-personalized emails. We've done significant testing in this area, and we've got statistically significant results that show that personalizing an email, hyper-personalized emails, do not work as well as relevant, casual emails non-personalized emails. 
So yeah, that one I definitely have to go deeper on because as you know, we are all about personalization and we have found, for example, that if you, you know, personalize up to the first 20% of your email, then you're going to get a pretty significant lift. Our finding is if you personalize 20%, you 2x your response rate. But I guess we were comparing against the completely unpersonalized, right, version. Yes. So you're talking about a little bit different. What's an example of relevant non-personalization? What is that? David Gearhart from Drift put out a great video on this on LinkedIn, and he, he said it better than I do. So he said, personal versus personalized. So personalized is I've done a bunch of research on you personally, and I'm using all of this research to inform this content, to make it seem as though I know you in some way. Like I've done all this research on you as a person, which is different from personal and relevant. Relevant meaning I am sending you something relevant to your job, to your position, to your persona that is casual in tone. That's the difference. And it might seem nuanced, but I think it's really important because, you know, and I, I hate to use the, if somebody sent it to me type talk, because that's not certainly not scientific and certainly not statistical, but be that as it may, if somebody sends me an email, has all sorts of personal nuggets about me and they don't know me, I find that invasive. And that's sort of the narrative we've put around this finding of ours, which is, and look, we've done this insourced. We've had people here do it. We even went to an outsourced company and paid them $10 per email to hyper-personalize emails for us. So we've done two separate, relatively large scale, definitely statistically significant tests, okay? And neither worked as well as the personal emails. And I went to the CEO of this company and I said, why didn't this work as well? And he said, Jeff, between you and I, we're not sure it's better. The CEO of the company says this to me. We're not sure it's better to hyper-personalize emails. Give me an example of one that's like personalized, which is just about personal information that you've researched versus this contextually relevant to my role. Can you give me examples of how you would prospect me in those two ways? Sure. Here's how I wouldn't. Hey, Jeremy, uh, congrats again on your five-year anniversary at Sales Loft. I noticed you've risen up through the company through these four specific positions. That's amazing. Also, Atlanta is such a cool city, and I've been there recently, and I love the Braves. I've got this <laughs> awesome, got this awesome new CRM solution that can't miss. Can we talk on Wednesday? That's a hyperbolic example of a personalized email. Here's a personal email. Hey, Jeremy, hope you're doing well. Sitting in the office early after a holiday weekend, and I wanted to reach out because I've got this awesome CRM that I think helps folks like you achieve X, Y, and Z and increase meetings and lead flow, move people through the pipeline faster and close deals. Thought it might make sense to chat. Do you have some time next week? Those two things might not sound different, but there's a whole group of SDRs that are doing example A and doing that hyper-personalized research. And there's a whole lot of SDRs that are doing example B. And we found there's a statistical difference and that example B works a lot better. Where I thought you were to go with example B was actually to give me a nugget, which is, by the way, how I would want to be prospected. Yeah. So for instance, the way I might do it would be, hey, Jeff, 
I was combing through some academic research that I found lately, and Baba Shiv from Stanford found that if you set up a meeting where people need to make a decision, you're much more likely to get a yes in the morning than the afternoon. Like that's something I didn't know and would add value to me and is is contextually relevant to my role. Is does that also qualify? Yes, definitely. And I just, you know, I'm doing this off the top of my head. But yes, that is not personalized. That is personal. And it's true value. And people mistake adding value for adding true value, something that actually I can use to improve my day-to-day or to I can drop as a nugget in a conversation. But if it's true value like that, yes, it's the difference and it's the nuanced difference. And people are going to have to be really, I think, get smarter and smarter about this because at the end of the day, the sales engagement technology now, if you just had the sales engagement technology, and we did like three or four years ago, you were beating competitors just because of the tech. The tech was so far superior that you were winning in terms of getting more meetings than your competitors. The technology is becoming more and more table stakes. And so the way to win in the future will be how you wield the technology. And part of that is engagement, engagement with your cold call talk track, with your social touches, and with your emails. And so these little differences are going to start to become, or what seem to be little differences, are going to start to become incredibly important because everybody's going to have the tech. So you've got to dial into the level, the conversation that you and I just had in order to ensure that you're engaging prospects with relevant, concrete, engaging content, email, phone call, social touch, or whatever's next. As we wrap, I always like to ask guests to reflect on the conversation. What are some of the things you want to leave folks with? The number one thing I want to leave folks with is to at least go through the thought experiment of what if sales engagement does end up encompassing customer acquisition, retention, and upsells? And how would my organization react and how should I be thinking now? Just if that does happen, even if you vehemently disagree with that, that's number one. Number two, I would love listeners to think about how they're thinking about, especially within sales leadership, motivation and individual motivation of salespeople and what we can do to enhance that. And then lastly, I'd want listeners to think through the quick tactics of what's going to win when everybody has the sales engagement tool, which is starting from a a starting point of having really good tests and making sure that baseline is high. So your tests are really good. And then ensuring that you're maximizing all the technology that you have by bringing it together. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the podcast. If people do want to reach out to you or to find out about Sapper Consulting, how would they do that? Easiest way, sapperconsulting.com. And forward all complaints and disagreements right to uh, Jeremy Donovan. (laughs) Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and take care. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.